Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. John 3, 16, 17, say it all. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him will, ha- will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world but to save the world through him. After the fall of man in the Garden of Eden and our moral brokenness separated us from a perfect and holy God, our only hope was God's love. Theologians believe there are two attributes of God that shine above all others. They are love and holiness. It's God's holiness that was offered when we sinned. It was God's love that created a way back to himself. God's love, God loves us for two primary reasons. First, we are made in the image of God, which is a reflection of God that remains fully in us even after the fall. Second, it is simply in God's nature to love us and pursue us and, give, and never give up on us. That is good news. It is that love that caused God to come into the world in the person of Jesus, giving up the glories of heaven. It was that love that caused God to take on humanity as he recognized that none of us would ever qualify to rescue the rest of us. It was that love that gave us Bethlehem's baby in a manger, born in poverty and in a cave. It was that love that put that baby on a cross. 33 years later, paying for all of our sins. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for your infinite and perfect love for each of us. We are reminded of it in so many wonderful ways during the Christmas season. May we experience it afresh and anew every day. May we spread it to others who need your forgiveness and grace, just as we did. In Jesus' name, amen. We light the candle of love today. Well, today we're continuing with our series, Light of the World, and I've entitled uh, our message, Heart Prep, or Heart Preparation. Jesus of Nazareth was not accepted or believed in by the majority of those people who were exposed to his life. Think about that. Because we're people of faith 2,000 years later. But when Jesus walked the earth, he was not accepted or believed in by the majority of those people who were exposed to him. I find that remarkable. I find it stunning. Because we tend to believe, I tend to believe, that the evidence should be convincing enough for us, therefore it should have been convincing to them. Because we're 2,000 years removed from it, and I find it convincing. Now granted, we have more of the story. You know, we, we have all of the story and all of the scriptures But we're not eyewitnesses. We're looking at eyewitness accounts. And yet the majority of people who were exposed to Jesus did not follow him. Jesus actually had a theory about that problem. He spoke about it uh, in a variety of ways. At times he would talk about uh, spiritual blindness. He talked about the blind leading the blind. He referred to this issue of spiritual sight. 
He talked about spiritual deafness. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he talked sort of about spiritual hearing, spiritual sight. He talked about different kinds of hearts. He gave us a parable of the sower, which is probably the best illustration in his teaching about this issue. So there's a farmer, he goes out to sow, he he preps his field for seed. So he probably takes a a mule or a pair of oxen and and he breaks up the soil. And then he takes a, a bag of seed or grain and maybe with a soft breeze, he tosses it up into the air and it's gonna fall on this broken ground. Now it's not all gonna succeed, it's not all gonna germinate, It's not all going to bear fruit equally, and he talks about the different kinds of soil it's going to hit because they reflect different kinds of hearts. He says some seed fell on hard soil, and when he's talking about hard soil, he was talking about the ancient path that people would use for animals and people, maybe a path that would go between different plots of land owned by different people, but it was the path used for centuries. That seed would hit that path, and even when the plow hit that path, it would skip up over it. It couldn't break up that ground, so the birds would come and just eat that seed off the top of the ground. It never penetrated the soil. He said some seed would fall on rocky soil. When we think of rocky soil, we think of maybe a little bit more, you know, North America where rocky soil, and I can remember doing this when I was a kid. My Uncle Lloyd owned a farm. And we would go out there behind the tractor, there'd be sort of a, a skid or a, a big a piece of board, and we would go looking in the field for rocks, and they would be these big field stones. And, and over the centuries, as you're plowing that land, they'd keep coming up to the surface. And so we would have somebody, you know, watching out for Tyrannosaurus rexes and raptors while the rest of us, you know, were in the field. It was a long time ago. And we, you know, so we had somebody on lookout, we'd pick up those rocks, we'd put them on that wagon, we'd get to the edge of the field, we'd throw them in the corner. But that's not what rocky soil was in the Middle East. In the Middle East, you'll have limestone sort of slabs that are underneath maybe six or eight or 10 inches of dirt. So you can't even see that it's rocky. Seed would fall on that. It would quickly germinate. It would quickly grow. But it was short-lived because then the sun would beat down on it. It would take its toll. It would dry out. It would die. That's rocky soil. Some seed fell on thorny soil. This soil held the roots of thorns and thistles that went back generations. And so the seed would grow, but the thorns and thistles would grow up with it and would choke it out. And some seed fell in good soil. And that would grow and produce 30, 60, 100 times the amount of the seed planted. In that parable, the seed is God's word, Jesus said. And the soils are different kinds of hearts. The hard soil, the path, that's that soil where the, where the word of God just can't penetrate at all. The stony soil where there's sort of, there's sort of some short-term interest in Jesus. Somebody gets excited about Jesus, but the cares of the world sort of drown it out and dies off quickly. The thorny soil is where somebody thinks they're committed to Jesus, but the world around them is, is just so powerful that it sort of chokes out that interest in Jesus. And then the fourth kind of soil is the good soil, a receptive heart. Those hearts all exist today, and those hearts are not reflective necessarily of believers and unbelievers. They're reflective of sort of where we find ourselves at with the word of God at different times in our lives. The good news is hearts change over time. The bad news is it's not easy. Enter John the Baptist. 
Because that was his whole purpose. And I want to read a passage of scripture with you in Luke chapter 1. It's on page 43 of the New Testament. So get about three quarters of the way through the Bible or so. It should start out with page 1. And this is on page 43, the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to read beginning in verse 5, about 20 verses. Beginning in verse 5, the Gospel of Luke. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, so she was the daughter of a priest. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. They were both advanced in years. Now, one of the reasons he's talking about how good they were, and including Elizabeth in this, is because many people would have thought if you were childless, it was some sort of judgment on God. So Luke is right away saying, hey, these are really, really good people. And it was a very painful view of infertility back then, but that was the view. They had no child. She was barren. They were both advanced in years. Now, it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So this is taking place at the temple. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right, or to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll drink no wine or liquor. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This heart prep we're talking about. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, "Um, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. In other words, I don't appreciate you questioning me right now. Behold, because of this, took out his angel discipline handbook Because of this, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. In other words, for nine months, you're not going to be able to talk. It's also an answer to Elizabeth's prayers. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zechariah and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among women. Now, the next verse you'll see in the sixth month of this pregnancy, then Gabriel goes to Mary and announces that she's going to give birth to Jesus. Just three points here. Number one, another ancient prophecy about Messiah was fulfilled. Now, 
This is probably Luke's primary purpose. If you're looking for authorial intent in the passage, this is it. He's trying to outline that, that John the Baptist is coming along with Jesus. Because, and this is critical, if Jesus is the next item on salvation's calendar, then he's not the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. We say, how can that be? Because Jesus, according to the Old Testament, has to come along with another prophet. There's going to be another prophet who precedes Jesus. It's a huge deal. It's what Israel was looking forward to. Their prophecies spoke to it. Prophecies about Messiah included this other prominent figure, which we sort of minimize as an afterthought. But it was a big deal. In fact, here are the two prophecies that speak about this figure in history. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. The voice of one calling out, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the uneven ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is Isaiah's prophecy about this prophet who would accompany Messiah. Here's the other one, Malachi 4, 5, and 6 are two primary passages. This is the one that Luke references right here. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and strike the land with complete destruction. In other words, there's going to be this revival that would come along with this prophet who will accompany the Messiah. These are the two prophecies referring to the person we know, the person Jesus identified as fulfilling these, John the Baptist. The first one we read, Isaiah 40, that's the more popular one, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. Luke actually references the less known one that comes from Malachi 4. All four Gospels tie John the Baptist to Jesus' ministry because Jesus was going to get this sort of affirmation from John that he was the Messiah. To us, sort of an afterthought. But to the Jews in Jesus' day, this was huge. And actually, John the Baptist became so popular that people thought he was the Messiah himself. So that's Luke's primary purpose. You've got this man who's going to accompany the Messiah, and he's saying this is being fulfilled in this birth of John the Baptist. Second point, and that's the story here, which is a beautiful Christmas story. Another mysterious conception accompanies the virgin birth. Now, this, I love this story. It's one of my favorite narratives in the Scripture. In Israel, being a priest was not just a calling. In fact, it might not have been as much a calling as it was sort of a family destiny. So today, if you want to be in ministry, you might have a value of, hey, I really care about people. I really care that they spend eternity with Jesus. I want to make sure I spend my life trying to influence people to follow Jesus. And so you sense a call to ministry. You might go to school and get prepared for that. That was sort of the path that I took. But in the Old Testament, if you were a priest or in the New Testament era, that's not how people thought this is what would accompany their thinking. They're all sons of Aaron. They're all through a certain family lineage. Therefore, they're automatically intended to be in this priesthood. It says all priests were sons of Aaron. 
And there were two groups of people that needed to be able to prove their lineage at this point in history, and those were kings, which is why you have a lineage of Jesus in the Gospels, and priests actually also had to be able to trace their lineage back to the sons of Aaron to be legitimately accepted as priests. It was a big deal. What's interesting about that, and this is a little side note, you can forget about it after I say it, after A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed by the Romans, no Jew could prove their lineage back to King David any longer. So in other words, if Messiah didn't come before A.D. 70, there would be no way to prove son of David, son of Abraham, because those records were destroyed when the temple was destroyed. So Zechariah is a priest. He's living in the hill country of Judea near Jerusalem, so Jerusalem's in Judea. But he doesn't live in the normal places the priests live. And I think it was because of the kind of the, the private life they had because of their inability to have a child because that would have been looked at religiously very negatively. Most priests lived near Jerusalem. Actually, many lived in Jericho, which was about 17 miles from Jerusalem. 20,000 priests lived in Jesus' day. 20,000 sons of Aaron were priests. There were so many of them, there were too many of them, the, the, the temple was overstaffed, you might say, that they divided up into 24 divisions. 24 divisions of almost 1,000 made up these 20,000 priests. Well, that meant they also had to divide up when they served. So the priests would come in for each of the three festivals. I believe those were Tabernacles, Passover, and Pentecost. Those were like week-long festivals. And then two other weeks. So 24 divisions times the, the three festivals, two other weeks. You served five weeks a year. The duties when you got there, because you were still there serving with maybe eight or 900 other priests, the duties there were two daily burnt offerings, two, a meal offering, and the burning of incense. So there weren't a lot of things to do for this group of priests, and so they would, they would cast lots to, to determine who would get these privileges of actually participating in this public temple worship with the congregation all waiting outside. Burning incense represented, I believe, the prayers of the people going up to God was sort of symbolic of that. And if a priest was chosen by lot to actually perform the burning of incense, he could never do it again. He could do it once, once in a lifetime. It was kind of a big deal. So Zechariah went to a place which was actually called the Hall of Hallowed Hewn Stone. The Hall of Hallowed Hewn Stone. So it was probably a beautiful place, cut out in stone. Lots were drawn there. And he was drawn to offer incense and then probably do a prayer of blessing on the people. Offer incense inside in the temple, come outside, offer a blessing to the people. Hundreds, probably thousands of people are outside the temple waiting for the priest, for Zechariah, to appear to offer this blessing. And we know that Zechariah was delayed. Now being delayed when you're in the temple is not a good thing. In fact, on the, the, day, of, um, the day of atonement, they'd tie a little a rope to the priest's leg in case he was in the Holy of Holies too long and God struck him dead, they'd be able to drag out his body with a rope. So, you know, when the priest is delayed coming out of the temple, there's something to worry about. So in the temple, as he's offering incense, he's visited by an angel. And this is Gabriel, probably the most well-known angel in scripture other than Michael, the archangel. And he says, God has heard your prayer. Now, a prayer from the priest would typically be for the nation. But obviously, 
Zechariah, not having a child, has been praying for a child as well. And, and that's partly what the angel is referencing. You're going to be a daddy. Your son, in fact, is not just any son. The reason I'm telling you this in, this, in the temple is because he's going to have a, a great place in salvation history. He's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. He's the one that we're talking about in Isaiah 40. He's the one we're talking about in Malachi 4. Your son is going to be that guy. He will get Israel ready for the God-man, Jesus. And then Zechariah just really doesn't do well with this. So we can learn a few things from his interaction with an angel. He begins to break the ancient and well-known code of what never to say uh, or do to an angel. And there are a few well-known suggestions there. Don't stare at the wings, it's not polite. Guys with feathers are always feeling a little awkward. Don't have the pronoun conversation. We don't know what angels really are. Are they he, she, it? We all struggle with that. In fact, theologians debate this. I'm not making this up. In Genesis chapter six, it says the sons of God married the daughters of men. Many people believe that's the Sethites marrying sort of the Canaanites or something like that. Some people believe it's the sons of God as in angels intermarrying and breeding with women. I know this is a little Star Trek-ish, but there's a whole group of theologians who believe that they had these unique offspring that are the product of angels and women. So anyway, we don't know about angels and sexuality. It's pretty confusing. So don't have the pronoun conversation. It's very confusing. Never talk about ancient relatives. Lucifer is a sore subject. But the one that Zechariah, that Zechariah really messed up is this one. Don't ask for a sign when the appearance of an angel is a miraculous sign. I mean, think about this, the, the sort of the density factor that he was experiencing in this moment. He's got an angel. Now, this is after what we would call the 400 silent years. Between Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament, there have been no miracles, no word from God, no scriptures written. He's got an angel with him in the temple, appearing miraculously, and he says, all right, I want to believe you, but could you give me a sign, please? That's what Elizabeth had to deal with. Gabriel was not amused. And evidently, Gabriel had a little flexibility what Gabriel could do. So, but in fairness to Zechariah, I want you to think about his life experience thus far. And he uses language of himself and Elizabeth that's normally reserved for people over 60. All right, no. I'm 60, which is the new 40. And I like to think that, you know, this is not a big deal, you know, and, and, you know, we're really not aging. But the reality is he's using language of himself and Elizabeth. It clearly is indicating that Elizabeth is postmenopausal. She can't have children. That's the language he's using. Zechariah had given up. They had given up. Some suggest that they live in the hill country because of this, because they felt great shame. In fact, and I, this is just brutal, this kind of thinking, but childlessness in that era, especially in a priestly family, would have been viewed as, a, viewed as a legitimate cause for divorce based on rabbinic views in that era. And they would have just sort of blamed the woman and would have said to Zechariah, you can, you can divorce her and remarry because she hasn't given you a son. That was the thinking. So I believe that's probably why they lived in the hill country of Judea, to avoid that kind of gossip. But Gabriel had already put in a 12-hour day. He pulls out the angel discipline handbook, and he made Zechariah dumb for the full nine months. 
Zechariah comes out to bless the people. He's got no ability to talk. I don't know if he realized it was going to start right then or if he thought he's got a couple of days before this hits him. It started right then. He walks outside. I don't know if he's doing hand gestures, you know, sort of charades. I don't know what happened there, but it would have been quite funny to watch. People recognize something had occurred. He'd seen a vision, and when his service is over, he makes the walk home carrying this news of what's in store for Elizabeth. I so wish I knew what happened next. And I know you're all worried about whether this is just going to go PG-13 here. It, it won't. But I'm wondering, did he tell her? It, or, you know, does he tell Elizabeth about what God has done with him? Or does he buy a bottle of wine, a candle, and some massage oil, just sort of surprise her, and, and then she gets pregnant? I see Darlene laughing. Thank you, Darlene. I don't know what happened, but very soon after that, Elizabeth, post-menopausal Elizabeth, whose body has ceased its ability to have children, is pregnant. And I'm sure she can't believe it. You imagine her body starts changing. She gets a little morning sickness, and, and she can't believe this. And I'm sure Zechariah, eventually, he's got to spill the beans. I don't know if he did it the first day or, like I said, after, who knows. This is the other Christmas miracle. It, it's almost as cool as the virgin birth. It's an awesome story. Six months later, Mary's pregnant. This dynamic duo are in utero at the same time. And Luke, who's a doctor, actually says they sort of met in utero when Mary was fleeing the gossip about her pregnancy. God told her to go spend some time with her cousin Elizabeth, which she does. And it says in the same chapter in verse 41, when John and Jesus met, and these two ladies are sort of giving each other a hug and the baby's bump, it says John the Baptist leaped in her womb. I, you know, I, I can imagine Luke writing the gospel of Luke. Honey, should I, should, I, should I include that? Oh yeah, yeah, include that. Nothing to do with anything except John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one who's going to get everyone ready for him. And even when they met in utero, it's like John is excited about the prospect. It's a beautiful story. Another mysterious conception. And third, the minister of heart prep comes into the world. Because that's who John was. The minister of heart prep. Getting people's hearts ready for Jesus. So John the Baptist is born. And Isaiah 40 speaks primarily, better in my opinion than Malachi does, to, to what actually his purpose really was. And he uses sort of a metaphor of ancient you know, infrastructure repair and preparation. It's road building. We read it earlier in Isaiah 40, how you'd sort of raise up the valleys, knock down the mountains, make things like a plain, make them like a highway to our God. What's going on there? He's describing ancient road building. If a king was coming, roads needed to be made ready. And so he's saying, fill in the low spots, take down the high spots, remove all the rough spots, create a smooth highway for the king, and in this case, create a smooth highway for God. 
Now, John the Baptist didn't tell people the gospel. John the Baptist would not have understood the gospel because in light of progressive revelation, how much he knew, he would not have understood Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and how it pays for our sins and gives us eternal life. He would not have understood that, but he would have known everything about the Old Testament God of Israel, who we worship as well. Christianity is a subsect of of Judaism in a sense. He baptized people who indicated that they had a heart of repentance. Repentance is basically a word which means to turn. He tried to get people's hearts to turn, to turn away from sin and turn towards God's law so that when they saw Jesus, they would recognize who he is. Jesus' ministry would be much more effective if people are already in a place of their hearts turning, already in a place of Repentance. Now it's likely, in light of how popular John was, it's likely that tens of thousands, if not more, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, followed him. People thought he was the Messiah. He was asked that. And he said no. But he was the minister of heart prep. Now when I first started preaching about John the Baptist, Many, many years ago, John the Baptist, to me, is a fulfillment of prophecy. And that's what we started with, because I think that's Luke's primary purpose. But now when I preach this, I increasingly focus on why was he necessary as a fulfillment of prophecy? Why was it necessary to make this prophecy in the first place? Because think about this. Jesus was mostly presented to Israel, right? Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. Now, he, we know that when Jesus was walking the earth, we, we read the Gospels, we know he went into Gentile territory at times. We see that. We see him talking to a lot of people who weren't Jews, and we see him reaching out to them and them responding to him. But even Jesus said it wasn't his primary mission. Not at that point. His primary mission was to go to his own people and be embraced as their Messiah and Son of God. That was his primary mission. So I want you to think about this. Jesus isn't going and presenting himself on a daily basis to a group of Roman polytheists. He didn't do that. He didn't spend a lot of time with those kinds of people. He spoke to Jews, his own people. They were monotheists. They believed in one God. They were looking for him. They were looking for the Messiah. There are hundreds of prophecies about him from ancient times that identified what it would look like when he arrived in the human family. They begin on the third page of the Old Testament. Miracles accompanied him. All right? So he's going to a group of monotheists, believe in one God, who are looking for him with hundreds of prophecies preceding and miracles accompanying him, and he's still rejected by most people. Think about that. He's not trying to present himself in the world of skepticism today. He is going to a pretty friendly crowd. Monotheistic Jews with prophecies preceding him, miracles accompanying him, and he's rejected. How can that be? H.G. Wells, who wrote War of the Worlds, some of us probably read it when we were kids and had nightmares. 
also wrote a short story called The Country of the Blind. It's about an inaccessible, luxurious valley in Ecuador where due to a strange disease, everyone is blind. This is not true. After 15 generations of this blindness, there was no recollection of sight or color or the outside world at all. People were just born into blindness for 15 generations. Nobody remembered seeing. Finally, a man from the outside, a man who could see, fell into their midst. He fell off a cliff and kind of into this valley, and he survived, and he stumbles into their forgotten little country. When he realized that everyone else was blind, he remembered the old adage in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. He's feeling pretty good about himself. So he's trying to talk to people who are blind about what it's like to see. He tried at first on several occasions to tell them of sight. Look here, you people, he said. There are things you do not understand in me. And once or twice, one or two of them attended to him. They listened to him. They sat with faces downcast and ears turned intelligently towards him. And he did his best to tell them what it was like to see. But they never believed him because none of them had seen for 15 generations. They thought he was crazy. The man fell in love with a girl there, a blind girl. And the girl's father, Jacob, went to talk to a doctor about this man. And this was the conversation. The doctor said, I think I may say with reasonable certainty that in order to cure him completely, all that we need to do is a simple and easy surgical operation and remove these irritant bodies, remove his eyes. Then he'll be sane, they said. Yeah, he'll be perfectly sane and a quite admirable citizen. Well, thank heaven for science, said old Jacob. Wells goes on to point out that the man would not be allowed to marry Jacob's daughter unless he submitted to an operation that would blind him. So what would the man do? Well, he loved this girl. He fully meant to go to a lonely place where the, where the meadows were beautiful with white narcissists. There remain until the hour of his sacrifice should come. But as he walked, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the morning, the morning like an angel in golden armor, marching down the steeps through the mountain. And it seemed to him that before this splendor, he and his blind world in the valley and his love and all were no more than a pit of sin. And the man who could see escaped the country of the blind with his life and with his sight. This is where we live, in the country of the blind. That's actually a pretty apt illustration about the world we live in as Christ followers. You see... The greatest offense in the culture today in North America is to believe that you see and others don't. That is the greatest philosophical offense in North America, that you have the truth and others don't. Here's a question. If Jesus didn't have a chance then with monotheists, who are looking for him, and he's accompanied by miracles, how much more is John the Baptist needed today in people's lives? Which is you, by the way. Just a couple applications before we wrap up. First, the problem has never been the evidence, it's the heart. It's always been the case. You know, I'm, I'm a left-brain Christian. I just absolutely believe it's true. That's why I'm a Christian. That's it. That's it. I'm an, it's intellectual to me. I mean, it doesn't mean I don't have a heart for it, but I mean, the reason I follow Jesus is I believe it's true. 
left brain decision. Not because God loves me, I believe it's true. That's why I follow it. In Jesus' day, he fulfilled ancient prophecies that was ignored. He was born of a virgin that was interpreted as Mary's lie and Joseph's cover-up. He performed miracles. They were not denied. His enemies fully acknowledged the miracles. In fact, not only did his enemies acknowledge the miracles, historians acknowledged miracles of Jesus. Some referred to it as magic, but historians refer to Jesus doing things that were unusual. And in Jesus' day, you know how that was interpreted? Eh, satanic. Couldn't be God. Jesus' resurrection? Eh, stolen body. Jesus' post-resurrection appearances must not have really been dead in the first place or religious propaganda. It's all made up to sort of move the movement forward. All the evidence is there, but the reality is, as you know, when you're in a debate with a spouse or a friend, a skeptical mind can dismiss anything. If you're set on disbelief, you can get there pretty easily. The problem has never been the evidence. It's the heart. Jesus described that. Second, the good soil or receptive heart, the one of those four hearts that really, really receives the word of God is increasingly rare in our world today. It really, really is. Jesus' parable of the sower and the soils, he talked about the hard soil, that's the path. There's no penetration of the seed there. Birds come and eat it right away. The rocky soil is where you've got that limestone ledge underneath. The, the seed germinates, it grows quickly, and then the sun sort of just bleaches it out. It's done. So that's like a person who gets excited about Jesus for a week and it's over. The thorny soil is sort of describing a heart that it's competitive. The soil, the soil's not all bad. The problem is there's thorns and thistles in there along with the good seed. So it grows along with the thorns and thistles and it's choked out. And that's sort of what our world is like when we may love Jesus, but the world is awfully alluring. We just don't give our devotion to him. Good soil, a receptive heart. Two things are making evangelism very difficult in the Western world. And it relates to two of these kinds of hearts. One of them is the thorny soil that, you know, sort of it, it, the good seed grows up with all the com competition. And that's sort of in our Western lifestyles where we're affluent. We don't really need God. When you go to other countries, actually, that are like third or fourth world countries, and you talk about heaven, do you know that's actually a really an exciting part of the gospel message to those people? If you talk about heaven in North America, do you know what the average person feels, including us? I don't really want to go there anytime soon. You know, I like this world. The world isn't that bad, and I want to live as long as I can, and I don't think that's wrong. I think death is the enemy, even for the Christian, to a degree. But the reality is, we have hope. We believe heaven is going to be a wonderful place. There are people in some countries who look forward to heaven a lot more than we do because life is so hard. It's a lot harder for the gospel to penetrate the Western world because life isn't that hard. It's pretty great. That's thorny soil, really thorny soil. And also the Western mind is just hostile to faith. Decades and decades of pluralistic thinking is given us sort of the idea that there's opposition in the culture to any belief claiming to be the way to God. Now, if you want to go out there and promote four or five different gods or a thousand gods, you're going to be popular. But if you want to promote one God and Jesus is the only path to that God, 
Everything in the culture philosophically opposes you, which means there's opposition to anyone making a truth claim because truth is relative. There's opposition to anyone making ethical demands that flow from truth claims because who are you to tell somebody else how to live? Who are you to even quote Jesus on telling anyone else how to live? There's opposition to anyone trying to convert anyone. That's all hard soil. When I was a kid, it wasn't that way, and it wasn't that long ago, you know, and when the T-Rexes weren't out, we'd wander out, and we'd talk to people, and you could witness to people, and most people in North America, U.S. and Canada, most people in North America would have acknowledged the Bible as God's word and an authority in their lives. Can, can you even believe what I'm saying? That most people would have acknowledged that 50 to 60 years ago. We just don't live in that world anymore. Got a lot of hard soil that didn't used to be hard soil. So where does that leave us? Well, finally, we are John the Baptist, those outside of faith in Jesus. You have a job. It's never been harder. I have a job. We have a job to create this place in sort of the image of John the Baptist as helping people bridge on their journey to Jesus. Rarely do people find Jesus on their own. I mean, you'll, you'll meet them where they just, you know, you know, especially interestingly in some Muslim cultures where there's an increasing amount of miraculous visions of Jesus by Muslims who then search for Jesus and some might come to Jesus almost on their own. But that actually is rare historically when it comes to people finding Christ. Normally there's a series of healthy, loving interactions with Christians. That's, what, that's what's required in most people's lives. This series of good interactions with Christians who care about them. It's a process. There's actually, somebody sort of invented what's called an angle scale, E-N-G-E-L. You can look it up later, you can Google it. Uh, but uh, and I, I describe it a different way, but an angle scale will literally list sort of levels of interest in Jesus until a person makes a commitment. I often look at it like you've got a, a negative 10 person, a zero, which is a point of faith in Jesus, and a positive 10 person. A negative 10 person is an atheist who's hostile to any religious truth whatsoever. Um, they all work at the University of Minnesota where my wife graduated. Uh, but... Uh, She's not that way, but that's where they work. You know, they, they just, they, they hate the idea of religion. They hate the idea of tell, anyone telling anyone else anything is true. They're hostile to faith. They won't even go to church on Christmas Eve. That's your minus 10. Your zero is a person who's at a point of faith. But there's an awful lot of people in that minus seven to minus five to minus three category. It's like, you know what? They would believe something if the evidence were presented to them. They would be closer to Jesus if they had a person in their lives who was a Jesus follower who was actually a really good person who loved them. And so our job, my job, our job corporately is to create environments in our lives and in this church where people can make that journey where every time they're in contact with us, they're moving from that minus seven to the minus six, from the minus six to the minus four, they get a couple more questions answered, they get to the minus two, and then, you know what? They commit to follow Jesus, and then it's their journey of learning more about following Jesus. My job, your job, is to help move every person that we can towards that point of faith so that they follow Jesus, that's our job. And to do that, three requirements. Number one, 
have all the answers. No, 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 you don't need to. You don't need to. There's nothing wrong with telling a person who's interested in Jesus, I don't know, I don't know that. I'll get back to you on that. You know, I'll ask my pastor about that. And by that you mean Pastor Brennan. I'll ask my pastor about that, you know? There's nothing wrong with saying that to people, nothing at all. In fact, I think a lot of unbelievers would find that delightfully real, coming from some of us. I don't know, it's not a bad thing, but here's what you do need to do. You need to know people who are outside of faith. You need to have in your lives. It's like we can't live in the holy huddle. All of our friends shouldn't be people who go to Bethany Chapel and claim Jesus. Gotta live on the wild side a little bit. Jesus did, he was at all the best parties. Some of you, if you knew where Jesus was and who he was with, you'd really have a hard time. You really would. Because I know if I was at those parties, you'd have a hard time with me. And I kind of was at one of them last night. Uh, Never mind. Anyway. You need to have people in your life that don't know the Lord. You need to be in their lives. It's more than just knowing them. It's, It's engaging with them. And you need to love them and answer questions as they come up and, and show some interest in them. And, and eventually we do need, we shouldn't be like silent, like they have no idea what we believe. They need to know to some degree, but you don't need to shove anything down anybody's throat. You just need to be a good person and a good friend and somebody who believes in Jesus. And the opportunities will come. But you need to have those kinds of people in your lives and be willing to be used by God. And I gotta tell you, you are qualified to do that. And if you engage in that process, God will use you. And the question I have for you, are you showing up for that job? Because the people in your life that I can't reach, the people in my life that you can't reach, are all depending on it. They're depending on it for eternity. That's what John the Baptist is all about. He's not just the fulfillment of prophecy, it's why he had to come. Even Jesus needed somebody to come before him. How much more the world today. God, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for this beautiful story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's, it's, it's almost entertaining. It's such a beautiful story. But we know that behind that story is the very, very pressing need for people to be challenged, to be open to the idea of Jesus. There needed to be heart prep in people's lives, even for God. How much more for our friends and neighbors and relatives in a world that's a lot more difficult, a world where there's a lot more hard soil and thorny soil and stony soil. Help us to be the kinds of people that are necessary to bring others to a knowledge of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.